0: Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Well, amen. What a great time of worship all together here today. I want to say welcome to everybody that's here today. Of course, all of you joining us online as we've had this wonderful time of worship together. Now let's see if just for a few moments... You and I can each have a little bit of moment of alone time with God. Let's have a a word of prayer. Maybe right now just lift up some things you're thankful for in your life to the Lord. Maybe there's some things you need to say you're sorry for. Maybe just a moment about where you need his help. Lord, I don't, know, I don't know how you do it. It's beyond my ability to grasp how you can hear and focus on each one of us right now as an individual like it's a, a private conversation. I'm in awe of you and I praise you that you can do that. I praise you and thank you for the promise that you hear each and every one of our prayers. Oh, Lord, I pray where we are confused, you will guide. I pray where we're sick, you will heal spiritually, physically, emotionally. Oh, Lord, where we're with need, would you provide? God, where we're scared, will you protect? Lord, I thank you, you have answers to Literally every sentence that was just offered up, and, and Father, I would I would pray for all of these prayers here in this room, all those watching online. God, I pray this very day we'll see evidence of your goodness and faithfulness. This very day we'll see the difference that prayer makes. Lord, we trust you with that, but you know our faith is weak. God, would you to encourage and help our faith? Let us see something this very day that says it made a difference that I prayed. Lord, I pray you've been pleased by our conversations, by our thoughts, by our songs, by interactions throughout this morning. God, we ask now that you'd be pleased, honored, blessed by a few moments of stillness, silence, devotion to thinking rightly and accurately about you. Through your word, we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. Well, as uh, you just saw in the video, we are in a series on commandments. We have studied so far the Great Commandment. It's always said singularly, but it's two, right? Because you can't say one without the other. Jesus said it's two sides of the the same coin: love God, love your neighbor. So we've worked through that, and last week we began working into the. Ten Commandments, and we're going to walk through those one by one. Last week, we saw nothing before God. There's not to be anything in my life that is higher, greater, more to me than God. And we learned that God will test that. God will test what's going on in our lives, and if there's something in that number one spot, in that God spot. God's not testing that so he can discover. He's testing that so you and I can discover that. And I don't know about you. I'd like to kind of beat God to the punch there. I hope that doesn't sound wrong. I think I'd rather give a little self-test before I find myself up in a test with God. And we said, hey, I can test myself. I just have to ask, hey, can I give this to God? I can kind of do a little inventory of life, and you could potentially say of everything, but hey, listen, we know the competitors for the God spot in our life. We know what we're looking to for life and well-being. We know what is important in our lives, and so we walk through those things and say, hey, can I give that to God? Maybe we turn up the the pressure on that question a little bit and turn it into a prayer. Lord, if I won't worship or serve you with this, take it from me. Gosh, that almost sounds a little bit nervous to even say it, doesn't it? Could I pray, God, take this from me if I won't use it rightly. So that's our, that's our first command. We've also learned with these commands that while thou shalt not sound so foreboding, so ominous, these are words of kindness. We need these words. Listen, every single command is given because left to ourselves, we're going in another direction. Left to ourselves, we're going in the exact opposite direction of the command. So I wouldn't know this if God didn't tell me. I would choose the wrong... I'd put the wrong thing in the God spot. Every single time. So would you. So God is showing us right and wrong. Remember we said it's about love. How I love God in this moment, how I love people around me in this moment. That's what every command comes back to. I've also said, although probably not as clear as I'm about to say it uh, in this series, you know, one of the, the great things about the Ten Commandments is they are an everyday witness in your life, in my life, that I need Jesus. Because I, I I break these commands. You know, I don't break all of them every single day. As a matter of fact, I, I really try to obey a lot of them. I'm, I'm guessing I'm in a room filled with people who, you know, on most days, I really do want to do what these commands say. I really do want to obey them. And a lot of days I do. But there's commands I don't. Some quite often. Others every now and then. But they're always there. Not only the ten, but all of the commands in the Bible that come out of these ten. I I, I break them. I'm, I'm not going to stand before God and show a righteous, holy record. I need Jesus. So, man, I need these commands. Otherwise, I kind of think I'm all that. And so do you. So do all of us. Just watch people tomorrow and you will see... Total evidence, scientific evidence, we think we're all that. So I I need these commands for that purpose. So today we're moving into the second command, first command, nothing before God. Second command, don't try to capture God in physical form. Now you look at that and the word physical kind of looks like the operative word here. We'll, We'll come back to that. Let, let's go ahead and read the Ten Commandments. Turn in your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 20, Second book of the Bible, right after Genesis, or if you're using a Bible app, it's going to be at the top of the list. Uh, it's going to be right after Genesis. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to begin in verse one. Today is where you'll realize that I'm going to, even though we're only looking at one command a week, I'm going to read all ten commandments every you, you're going to, "Hey, he didn't stop on the one he's doing today. Is he going to read all 10 every week? Yes, I am. If it hurts, that's okay. You need it. (laughs) We will be okay when we get to the end of July and we've heard all 10 every single week. Exodus chapter 20. Let me begin in verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Number one, you must not have any other God but me. And that's me doing the numbering here. Here's, if you look down, and said my translation doesn't say number one. So I'm, I'm adding the number for us. Number two, verse four, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands." Number three, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Number four, remember to observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Then you will live long, a, full, a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Number six, you must not murder. Number seven, you must not commit adultery. Number eight, you must not steal. Number nine, you must not testify falsely against your neighbor. neighbor. And number ten, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And that ends the Ten Commandments. But if I could read just a few words of the next sentence. When the people, plural, when the people heard... Now now go back to verse 1. Then God gave the people. You know, when I read this list, is there there any of us in here? We won't do a show of hands. I imagine it's quite a few of us who imagine that when God gave the Ten Commandments, He gave that to Moses up alone on Mount Sinai. Remember, the lightning comes out of the cloud and it carves, you know, the writing into the tablets. You all know that, right? Because that's what the Ten Commandments in Charlton Heston taught us. It's amazing how much we know about the Bible that didn't actually come from the Bible. Now, actually, that scene being portrayed in the movie did happen, but not right here. It it happens after this. So it is not just Moses. It is all of Israel that is hearing God say this. It is all of Israel that just heard God say, "'Don't make an image.'" So that now now that we all know that God said this out loud for everybody to hear, we can now ask the question, how? Why? What in the world was going on that it didn't take two months from this moment for them to do exactly what he said not to do? Not even, I mean, okay, if you came back and said two years from now, yeah, we're... You know, we stray. Twenty years from now, yeah, we forget. No, it took two months. And they carve out a golden calf and they say, this is the God that made us. This is the God that saved us, delivered us out of Egypt. How do they do that? Well, simply put, sin makes you stupid. You want to go ahead and write that down. And don't put you, put me. Sin makes me stupid. Every single time. And in Israel's case here, they were stupid early and often. As a matter of fact, this is just like a little point of interest when you look at all ten commands. There's going to be two that for the next thousand years... now. It'll change when they get to about 400 B.C. This is happening about 1400 B.C. But for the next thousand years, they're going to break all the commands. But as a culture, as a group, they're going to really struggle with false images, uh, idols. And they're going to really struggle with the Sabbath. Those are two that as a group, boy, we're going to break these all together. All together, we're going to do this. Over and over and over they do that. As a matter of fact, as I just said, this is about the 1400s B.C. We can go forward 700 years. And the prophet Isaiah is talking to him about their, his word, not mine, stupidity. Listen to this. Isaiah 44, verse 12. The blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool. "'pounding and shaping it with all his might. "'His work makes him hungry and weak. "'It makes him thirsty and faint. "'Then the woodcarver measures a block of wood "'and draws a pattern on it. "'He works with chisel and and plain "'and carves into a human figure. "'He gives it human beauty "'and puts it in a little shrine. "'He cuts down cedars. "'He selects the cypress and the oak. "'He plants the pine in the forest "'to be nourished by the rain.'" Then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and bakes his bread. Then, yes, it's true, he takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol. He bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm. He says, Ah, that fire feels good. I think he's being a little sarcastic there. That's just my opinion. Then he takes what's left and makes his god a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says. You are my God. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. It's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all, yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol I'm holding in my hand a lie? I I like how he points out the craziness, the, the stupidity of this. I've got this log in front of me and I Cut it in half and over here I take care of the functions of life. I need warmth. I need to make my food. And, and with the same part of the log, now I'm going to carve it out and I'm going to make something and I'm going to say it made me. How, how stupid is that? Isn't it great that you and I don't have that problem anymore? We don't. I mean, seriously. Like, I I wouldn't say 100% of us, but I'm guessing pretty large number of us have never carved an image and bowed down and said, you're my God. I, I'm just guessing. You know, hey, Lord, we got this one covered. We're good. We're going to go with nine from here on out. Because we're so much smarter than this. Right? I mean, don't we look back and say, well, you know, that's an ancient people. They're more superstitious. They're, they're not as scientific and knowledgeable as we are. So they would have that problem, but, but not us. Right? Okay, well, we'll come right back to that in just a second. I do want to kind of clarify a difference between number one and number two. The the first two commands are kind of saying the same thing. Hey, there's one true God. Make sure your focus is on him, right? Make sure you know, make sure you're worshiping, make sure you're serving the one true God. Here are some tendencies in your life to guard for. Now, here's the difference. In the first command... My tendency can be unconscious. I don't really recognize that I'm doing it. I, I can eat. Didn't we learn this last week in Mark chapter 10? We saw a guy who would say, hey, God's number one in my life. I want God to be number one in my life. You should have God number one in your life. But what did we find out when he went through the test? Not only was God not number one in his life, but he was not going to make a course correction either. He wasn't going to change what the test really showed was number one in his life. So I, I, we can we can think we've got God number one and and not. That's and that's what God is saying in the first command is watch out for the subconscious, the unconscious, and what's going on there. Now in command number two, just the opposite. This does not accidentally happen. We very much on purpose go and. Get that piece of wood, carve shape, smooth out, sand it, and then say, this is God. That was not an accident. I knew very clearly what I was doing. Idolatry is mankind. Idolatry is you making God the product of your hand and mind. Mind. Not just the product of what I carve and shape with my hand, but he can become the product. I can shape and form and cut an image, an idol in my mind. And I think there is a tremendous idolatry happening in the average American Christian, in the, in the American church. You say, well, what, what are you talking about? Hey, I've sat in a Bible study where we asked this question. I've sat in a Bible study where, where somebody shared, this is an idea that runs through our culture. You know, when I think of Jesus, I, I like to think of him as. I like to think of him as. As is our chisel. As is our sandpaper. We think so highly of ourselves... We so think that I am God, and my thoughts and my desires are so great and so important that God is not above those thoughts and desires. He is the product of those thoughts and desires. And so we say, I like to think of Jesus as as the loving God, as if there's a mean one in the Bible. You know, God used to be real mean in the Old Testament, and then he got Jesus and he became nice. Nice. I like the loving part of God. And so I take that loving part of God. Uh, by the way, not a love defined by Scripture. Not a love defined by God. But a love defined by my sin. And I take that and I shine. that Oh, I love this part of Jesus. So I'm going to shine it up and smooth it out and polish it up. And put my favorite color on it. But then there's those thou shalt not. So those are so mean. I'm going to... I'm gonna carve that out. And the the righteousness and the holiness, that always sounds like it's against me. I don't like, I don't like that. I'm going to, I'm gonna carve that, I'm gonna cut that out, and we carve and we shape and we cut until we've got the God we want. God becomes the product of my mind. No, he may not be a piece of wood, but in essence. What's going on in your mind and in your heart is no more real than worshipping down and worshipping that, that piece of wood. That, that's the idolatry that goes on in our mind. That's the idolatry that can go on in a person who calls themselves a Christian, a Christ follower, a person who says, oh, I, I, I read the Bible. I don't listen to it because God's going to become the product of my revelation. My thoughts and feelings. So that's one idolatry that happens. A second idolatry, now this one's going to freak you out. Are you ready? Because it's going to bother some of you. Uh, down through the ages, I mean, century after century, there's been a, a lot of theologians, the majority of theologians, that have actually suggested that religious art is idolatry. Oh my gosh, right now you're thinking, oh, is he seen inside my house? Am I idolatrous? You're probably wondering what I think. Well, truth in advertising, right now I have a picture of Jesus on my wall hanging in my office. So you think, oh, he doesn't think it's idolatry. Ah." You know, honestly, I'm not sure what I think. Uh, Obviously, I I don't think I'm being idolatrous by having that hanging in there. But I'll tell you what, when you look at what those theologians are trying to say and explain, they're not wrong. They're not wrong in what they're communicating. I I think, boy, it just really puts us in a place where we've got to be really careful and we've got to understand our tendency. Our tendency is toward the physical. Our tendency is to make God smaller, to make him less. As a matter of fact, I tell you somebody that really helped me understand this a lot, a guy named R. Kent Hughes, R the initial, Kent Hughes. He wrote a book. It's It's an old book, a couple of probably 20 years old, I'm guessing, wrote a book called The Disciplines of Grace. Now, the title doesn't sound like it, but it's actually a book about the Ten Commandments, the Disciplines of Grace, and uh, I've loved it. It's been very helpful to me in understanding and studying the Ten Commandments, and he really helped me to, to grab a hold of what's happening in idolatry and what can happen with religious art if I'm not careful with it. He gives us five words. Five words of what's happening with idolatry. First of all, it's limiting, it's showing you less than what God is, much less, immeasurably less. An infinite amount of distance away less. Doesn't matter what the intention of the sculptor or the artist or the possessor of that artwork is. You've got to be constantly reminding yourself what I enjoy about this is showing me much less than what God is. It's also obscuring. Do you know there's no piece of artwork that even comes... Again, you can't even be measured how far off it is that is showing you God's glory. As a matter of fact, when you and I are impressed with the artwork, we're impressed with man's glory. I'm, I'm impressed with that person's ability to paint that, to, to sculpt that, and to do that. But I'm not interacting with God's glory. You say, how do you know I'm not interacting with God's glory? Because I saw some people interact with God's glory. I, Isaiah... Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Abraham, Moses, the apostle John are some individuals that had an opportunity to actually step in the fullness of God's glory. And do you know they had basically what you and I would call a, a breakdown? They had a physical, emotional, mental breakdown because his glory was that powerful. And in every single case, they're completely overwhelmed with their own sin. I'm being honest with you folks, I've never looked at it, and I love art, and I love religious art. And I've never looked at a piece of it and been overwhelmed with my own sin. Do you realize how far that is from showing us the glory of God? But it's shaping how I now see and look at God. It's localizing. I mean, right now, God is on my wall in my office. (laughs) Now, you know, we all know better than that, right? I I mean, seriously, none of us thinks that because that artwork is right there, that means God is right there and he can't be anywhere else. I I, I know most of us know the biblical teaching. God is everywhere present, entirely, completely. A hundred percent of God is here and a hundred percent of God is at the church in California and the church in China and the church in Casablanca all at the same time. I don't know how he does it, but it's pretty cool. I worship him for it. He's everywhere. And I don't think a piece of artwork means he's only right there. But, folks, watch how our physical nature works. Probably not all of us, but some of us, we have a special place at home where we pray. A special place where we pray, where we read our Bible, where we spend time with God. And what, what do we like to put in that special place? Our religious artwork, our praying hands, picture of Jesus... You know, I like that picture of Jesus. It kind of helps me think about him and, and focus on him. And all of a sudden, I begin to turn that room as a place where when I walk in there, I'm closer. Folks, you can't make a step that is closer or further from God. And see how artwork it will make me feel like? I know it's not true, but I can't help the feelings. That's my nature. You know, you know a piece of idolatry in, in, in the American church? The building. I've never worshipped the building. No, but if you're having a really bad week and feeling really far from God, you think, well, I need to get church this week. I need to feel closer to God. The building does not make you closer to God. See, that's how our physical nature works. So it is is localized. It's projecting. It's projecting something about God. The best we do as artists is we project something thats God-like. God-like. But we're not projecting God, but in our physical nature, we think, oh, that's God right there. You know how hard it is to read Scripture? Do you all know how much I practice reading before I get up in front of you? Especially when there's emotions involved, because all of a sudden, my tone of voice is telling you something about God, and maybe my tone of voice isn't right. Maybe I say something kind of angry sounding, and God wasn't being angry there. Maybe I'm saying something kind of joyful and happy sounding and God meant that to get up under us a little bit. I mean, just, that's just a tone of voice. So how much more of the artwork that we're looking at? And lastly, it's, it's, it's controlling. I mean, it gives me a chance to pick up God and I can, I can hold Him and I can look at Him and focus on Him when I need Him. And when I don't want Him to see what I'm doing next, I just turn Him the other direction and close the door. We all know that's not true, but it is absolutely what is going on inside us. He is the sovereign being of the universe, all powerful, all knowing, everywhere present, all authority. And if I move, I've got to put them in a box and take them with me. So all, all those things are happening. Do they all happen because I've got that artwork in my office? No. But boy, I've got to be. I've got to be mindful of my physical nature. I've got to be mindful of what my tendencies are because my tendency is to limit God. My tendency is to make God smaller. And do you know the religious art will actually help me to do that? You know, it's, it's a weird paradox. I don't need the God in that sculpture. I don't need the God in that I need the real one. How about you all? I need the real one that has all that authority and that power and that knowledge. That's what I need. And yet my nature turns around and wants to make them small. Wants to minimize. Idolatry robs me of the God that I need. Idolatry robs us of the God we need. So, boy, we've got to be careful in how we think, in what's being shaped and formed in our minds. One last quote from R R. Kent Hughes. I I I thought this was kind of cool, so I put it up there. When we keep it negatively, we cleanse and protect our soul of every wrong thought of God. And when we keep it positively, we fill our soul with the knowledge of God through his word and his son. That's how I get a revelation of who and what God is. Through his word and through his son. And if you do this, you see God more and more for what he is. Well, that's what I want. I want to see God more and more. And in so doing, you will be able to love him more and more. That's why I'm here. I want to love him more and more. Then you've got to think rightly and accurately, and thus you will worship him better and better. Now, when you look down there at Exodus 20, you notice a lot of these commands take place in just a few words, right? One sentence, one line. But we have a couple there that God goes... You know, he gives us all, oh, well, we just read one of those commands, right? This whole idea about building images isn't, isn't one command. There's a lot that goes with it. And so God begins to elaborate on our problem and the consequences, the results of this. And he, and he tells us, hey, God is jealous. Now, that's a little bit unnerving because the Bible tells me that jealousy is a sin, The Bible tells me not to be jealous. And yet here God is being jealous. Is this a a contradiction? You know, God's in charge so he can do what he wants, but he tells us something different? No, no, not at all. You know, if you'll think about this, we've talked about this some. Usually the emotion I talk about is anger. When you and I express anger, when we experience anger, 100% of the time it's tainted in sin. Whether it's your anger or the anger you're watching and experiencing from somebody else. You might be angry for a good and right reason. You and I just don't have the ability for that anger to come out without some level of sin being attached to it. God doesn't have that problem. God can perfectly show anger in a way that is truth and just and actually results in good. God can perfectly express anger we can't now everything i just said take out the word anger and put in the word jealousy god can god can experience jealousy without any taint of sin and actually that's not the the total explanation of what's going on here. It's, it's understanding this word. And that the word jealous is a good interpretation. The English word jealous is a good interpretation of the Hebrew word there. The problem is not the word we use. The problem is how we use it in our culture. In the English language, the word jealous really only has a negative connotation, right? It's just not really anybody that's going to feel it's a compliment to be called jealous. You, you call me jealous, I call you jealous, you're not going to assume I'm saying something nice about you, right? That, that's only a negative. In the Hebrew language, they absolutely have that negative connotation, but they also have a positive connotation. They also use that word in a positive way. Probably the words in the English language that we would use would be passion, passion. Because passion and jealousy are a lot... I mean, what is jealousy? It is passion run wild. It is passion that has become possessive. So that that when they use that word jealous, they could be talking about passion. Maybe another word we would use would be zealous. God is is zealous for his glory. Is that that self-centered of God? No, we've talked about that. No, because his glory is the best thing for this universe. His glory is the most wonderful, powerful thing you could ever know and experience. And he is zealous for you to have that opportunity. He is zealous, he is passionate about your right thinking about God because so much bad comes from wrong thinking and so much good can come from right thinking. Folks, everything you do in life Everything, every moment, every, everything is tied to how you think or don't think about God. And that's why God follows this up by saying, do you get it? When you, when you don't respect who I am, when you don't respect what I've revealed about myself, when you don't honor that, but you start thinking wrongly, do you realize that thought not only destroys your life, but it can run into your kids and into your grandkids and to the kids beyond them? You know, that verse has always been there, and my guess is most of us never live in light of that. Never. Don't ever think, man, i got to really be careful with what I'm doing with this. I've got to be careful with how I think about God because it's going to impact my kids, three, four generations. You say, no, wait a minute. I have a wrong thought about God, and God zaps my kids? No, what God is saying here is when you're not careful, because there's nothing bigger in life, folks, than his glory. When you're not careful with that and you're not honoring that, God says, hey, listen, I'll just step back and let it run its course. I am not going to grab your head and how you think about me and plunge it underneath the water of right thinking until you give up. I'll be honest with you folks, sometimes I wish God would do that to me. I mean, I really do. God, could you please force me to obey? But then we left a love relationship, didn't we? He's not going to force it. And He says, "If you're not careful, here's what's going to happen, and and it's going to run generations. Wrong thinking, and wrong thinking always produce broken wrong lives. And it doesn't just happen in a, it doesn't just happen in a biological, a physical family, folks. It happens in a spiritual family. Idolatry can run through a church." I believe idolatry has run, I referred to it earlier, I believe idolatry has run through the American church to where we believe we can all sit around and have a wonderful spiritual conversation about how we like to see Jesus. And we applaud and promote the idea that my my thoughts and desires have the authority to shape who and what God is. And that runs through our church, and it destroys churches, and it destroys denominations. And I'm just going to say the evidence is out there. If you don't get that, I don't know what else to say. If you don't see the evidence, I I, I don't know what else to say. We we have so little impact on our culture, and much of what we have is so negative. Because we're not careful. We're not careful. You know, God's desire in your life and in my life is not to stand back and say, okay, stupid, I'll let it run its course. No, he says, hey, you know, my real desire is when you think rightly, I'll not only bless your kids and their kids and the kids, I'll bless for a thousand generations. What in the world is a thousand generations? I I can't see a thousand generations beyond me. And God's going, that's right, you can't, but I can. And that's what I can do when you care about how you think about me. Man, oh oh gosh, what do I do? Well, doesn't it always start in prayer? I mean, any time I read God's word, it should lead me to praying about something. Any time I interact with a command, I I should be moved to prayer. And so I read this command and I think, man, Lord, would, would you point out in my life where I'm currently not thinking accurately about you? May I feel a conviction about that next time I begin moving and working and that idea, that understanding of you, make something not right in me. Please, God, let me see that. Hey, God, would you point out what's going on in my life, point out what is influencing and encouraging that wrong thinking in me? Is, folks, we're... We're so stupid, we won't recognize the wrong thinking. I've got to recognize the wrong thinking. I've got to recognize where that thinking is coming from. Man, God, I need your help. Please open my eyes to what is going on and, and to, to what I'm doing. God, would you give me a devotion to who you are? And may I realize my, my devotion to something is, is going to be found in my understanding of Christ in and through your word. Folks, so much comes back to what we're doing with this. You know, a, a, a quote, I've quoted it before. I think our other, some other of our other pastors have quoted before it say, It's a favorite quote of A.W. Tozier because it's so profound. What you think when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, I might look at that and go, that sounds cool. I wonder what it means. Why is, why is that the most important thing about me? Isn't that what just the command we just read? Man, do you realize what you're thinking about me could impact negatively your children and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren? Or when you honor and respect who and what I've revealed, you could impact positively, you could bring blessing into generations beyond you that you can't even comprehend. Did you think accurately about God this week? What did you do to think accurately about God this week? You know, it's impacting everything and everybody that you love. Let's pray. Father, I I really believe a whole whole bunch of us here, we really do want to think rightly and accurately. God, we need your help. Holy Spirit, we need your help. I'm sure on some level many of us could say, I've been very lazy in how I form and fashion my thinking about God. We've allowed idols to pop up. We've thought, surely God can't be that or do that because it didn't reconcile with my thoughts and feelings. Lord, please help me to see I don't need the God of my thoughts and feelings. I, we need the God that is. So God, in your patience and in your grace, would you convict me and make me uncomfortable with the wrong thinking? Would you show me where that wrong thinking is coming from? Whether it's entirely internal or whether it's being encouraged and and motivated from something external. Please help me to see that and give me the courage and the faith to act severely. If I'm going to carve something out of my life, I pray it's what's leading me to wrong thinking about you. Lord, I pray you'd give me a fresh awareness, a fresh devotion, a fresh love, a fresh commitment to knowing and studying your word. Oh, you want us to know you. There's so much you want us to know, and you've revealed, you've made it clear. God, we need your help on this one. We ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.